Last week we saw that we should value what God finds valuable in marriage. And today we find the summary of the things that Peter began saying in chapter 2 about submission to unjust, unreasonable, or unbelieving authorities. Does it really matter how you treat those around you while facing persecution? You and I might think, well, we've got bigger things to attend to. We're perhaps threatened uh, for our lives or for our homes or for our families. If we were to find ourselves in the sort of persecution that the early church faced uh, that involved things like prison and death and isolation and rejection, all those sorts of things, uh, the last thing on our minds is how do we act toward the people around us? We've got bigger things to worry about. But Peter says when facing persecution, perhaps even particularly when facing persecution, here's how you're supposed to respond. Live humbly as one while you bless your enemies. Live humbly as one while you bless your enemies. First, this idea to live as one in humility we see in verse 8. Peter gives us a list of godly qualities. Be harmonious, be sympathetic, be brotherly, be kind-hearted. To be harmonious is the idea of agreeing. Perhaps the opposite of it is best illustrated in Philippians chapter 4, uh, the passage that you're probably familiar with, where Paul calls out two women in the church at Philippi, and he says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Be harmonious, be agreeing, be working alongside each other. The irony is sometimes the people that we are around the most, with whom we would have the best relationship because we've known them the longest and all those sorts of things, are occasionally the people that we find it the hardest to get along with. And the reason for that is sin, right? Because we get selfish about things and we decide that, you know what? This is the thing that I'm not willing to back down on. Peter says, be harmonious. These two women had some issue that was a point of contention. And it led to disunity in the church. And that, the same thing can be true for us in our church as well. They can start with a little thing. Feel like someone didn't warmly greet you when you came in the church. Uh, someone forgot an important thing that you asked them to pray about. Um, any number of things can be the root cause of frustration and irritation toward another person, particularly in the context of the church, or in your own family. But you have a choice whether to say, this thing that this person is doing, being cheerful and humming first thing in the morning, when no one should be cheerful and humming first thing in the morning. Whatever it is, to the extent that you let that create resentment, and frustration that then leads to a contentious disagreement with that person, it may start out small, and it may be a relatively unimportant thing, 
but then it's going to lead to things that are more important and it's not going to stay small. Which is why Hebrews warns against a root of bitterness that springs up and defiles many. Why Paul calls out these two women by name in the church at Philippi. Why in in connection with even a church like ours, if two people have a disagreement that then leads to people taking sides and there being gossip and all these other sorts of things, what started out and seemed like a really little thing can lead to something that destroys relationships and dishonors God. And so, Peter says to be harmonious with each other. He doesn't mean agreeing about whether your favorite color is red or purple. He doesn't mean agreeing about whether or not the Lions are a terrible sports team. He doesn't mean agreeing about all sorts of things that are not important in life. He means to the extent that you're in Jesus and that person is in Jesus and the Holy Spirit has put you together into the body of the church, you ought to have common goals and points of agreement on what really matters in life that then leads you to say these other things are not important and not a reason for me to destroy relationships over. Peter says to live in unity by being harmonious. He says to live in unity by being sympathetic. We see, for example, in uh, Romans 12:15, which I think is a parallel passage, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, be of the same mind toward one another. This is hard to do because we want people to feel with us the things that we are feeling, but we feel like maybe it's hard work to feel with them the things that they are feeling. In other words, let's say that you feel like you've had a really great day and then somebody comes along and they've had a really miserable day. You want it to be that they're going to rejoice with you, but you don't really want to weep with them. Or let's say that you have experienced some great sorrow and you're still in the midst of that sorrow and something really joyous happens for someone else, you and I don't want to step out of that moment of sorrow that we're in and then go rejoice with the person who's rejoicing because that's hard work because we don't feel like doing it. You and I may not know exactly what other people are feeling or experiencing This is not meant to be a hypocritical kind of thing. But to the extent that we have a right response to other people in the context of the church, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Peter says here, be sympathetic, feel the same sorrow, suffering, difficulty alongside them. To the extent that we can bring ourselves with God's help to do that in important moments for the people around us, that builds unity in the church among God's people. To the extent that we say, I will feel what I'm feeling and I don't care what you're going through, good, bad, or indifferent, that doesn't really build unity in the church. Peter says to be sympathetic. Peter says to be brotherly. Brotherly here is, I think, pointing toward the idea of brotherly love. 
I think a parallel would be what we see, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 4.9. Paul says, As to love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you practice it toward all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia, but we urge you to excel still more. Paul connects it with the idea of testimony in the case of the Thessalonians, work hard so that you're not a bad example to those who are outside the church. Here, Peter says to be brotherly with one another and to express this sort of love even though there is persecution and difficulty going on. In moments of stress and difficulty and being overwhelmed, who are the most likely targets of your frustration? It's often not the people who are causing you the frustration because you usually can't get at them. You know who you can get at? The people right around you. So why does Peter say to demonstrate brotherly love in a time of persecution? Because you're going to be tempted when there are threats outside and you feel the tension and the stress and the difficulty of that building that instead of banding together, you're going to say, I might not be able to do anything about them, but I can take it out on you because you're just nearby. This is said in contrast to 2 Timothy 3.2, where it says people are lovers of their selves. It's interesting. It's a compound word here, lover of brother. There's another compound word in 2 Timothy 3 that's lover of self. If we come back here to 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1.22 since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you've been born again, not of seed that is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. You say you're a Christian. You're supposed to love one another. We know that love one another for love is of God. We went to Sunday school, you learned that verse. Even as an adult, you may have heard it. Um, but do we actually carry it out? Peter is, I think, anticipating what he's going to say in 2 Peter 1.7, that this is part of this process of spiritual maturity God is producing in us. He says, in your godliness supply brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. He's going to say, if these qualities are yours and increasing, you're neither useless nor unfruitful. But if you lack them, you're blind or short-sighted, having forgotten your purification from your former sins. So to the extent that you and I don't show brotherly love with the people that God has put around us on a daily basis in the context of the church, how are we going to show love to people who hate us if we don't even show love to the people right around us that, for the most part, care about us and demonstrate that love toward us? Love one another in a brotherly way. The last two things are, I think, less actions. Because being harmonious takes a lot of work. Getting along with people. Being sympathetic takes a lot of work. Feeling the needs and difficulties and joys and everything else of the people around you. Being brotherly, expressing brotherly love, that's by and large an action, not just sort of a happy feeling. The last two things, though, are more of uh, attitudes or mm, dispositions or things like that that enable us to do the first three. 
He says to be kind-hearted. To be kind-hearted. It means good-hearted, kind-hearted, that from within is an attitude of doing good toward people around you. We see this, perhaps the only other place I think that this exact word is used in the New Testament is Ephesians 4.32. You're probably familiar with that. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Could be an attitude, could be an action, but Peter says to be kind-hearted. We might not always want to be described this way, because we might, guys might see this as a sign of weakness, potentially, but this is not a sign of weakness. This is something that God calls everyone to, to have a soft and good and tender heart, both toward him and toward the people around us. The contrast, I think, would be what we see all throughout the Old Testament, where God says, here is the reason for this thing. Your hearts were hard, you were stubborn, you were selfish, you were doing your own thing. Peter says to be kind-hearted. Humility in spirit, being humble in spirit, is, I think, the foundation of all these things Peter is calling us to. To live with humility. Why? Because pride leads to disunity. We see this, for example, in the book that Paul writes to the Corinthians. Why was it that they said, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ? Why was it that they were fighting over spiritual gifts? Why was it that they were going and having lawsuits with each other? Why was it that they were exalting this man who was sinning instead of dealing with his sin? Pride. Pride leads to disunity and God's judgment. Humility leads to God's blessing and what he wants being accomplished in the context of the church. It echoes Jesus' example as well. Jesus, in Philippians 2, humbles himself. Jesus is God. So Jesus humbles himself, takes on humanity, serves people, and we're supposed to follow in his footsteps. We're supposed to be humble too. Peter's going to talk more about this in chapter 5 when we get there. He talks about how old men and young men and all of those are supposed to behave. And he says, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Live with humility. If I come into the context of the church, my family, before we gather at the church, all those sorts of things, and my attitude is, here's what I deserve, here's what other people are going to do for me, and here is why I am better, what's the result going to be? The result is going to be, I'm not going to get along with people. I'm not going to care about the things that they're going through. I'm not going to love them in a brotherly way. I'm not going to have a tender heart toward them because I'm only focused on me and what I want. And that pride will lead to all sorts of other sins. And if that's not sufficient motivation that it will wreck your relationships with the people around you that God's called you to be in relationships with, God will be your enemy. That's what it said there, right? 
It says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We're like, well, we haven't gotten there yet. Okay, verse 12. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If we stubbornly go through life proud and self-serving and self-sufficient with no regard for the people around us that God has called us to minister to and to serve, God will not make it go well with us. God's not pleased with it. God doesn't honor it. We say, well, everybody has a little bit of pride. It's not that big of a deal. Well, to the extent that it led Satan to get kicked out of heaven and Adam and Eve to disregard God's words, and it is the complete opposite of the way that Jesus and his followers in the New Testament lived, I think it is really a big deal. You need to live as one, but you're not going to live as one unless your lives are characterized by humility. Unless I am humble, I'm not going to care about living in unity with the people God's put around me. And I'm not going to have a basis to live in unity with them because I'm acting like what God hates, which is proud sinners. So positively from this passage, believers are to live in unity through humility. What does this look like practically? You and I are going to be tempted to get into fights with people about things that really aren't that important. I was a couple of the groups or whatever posts that popped up on Facebook. People were arguing about, should you have a a church service on Christmas Day? And there was a group of people over here who was saying, if you didn't have a church service on Christmas Day, you hate Jesus and everything about Christianity. And there were people over here that said, Um, Well, if you do have a church service, then you're being legalistic and you're not caring about people's time with their family. And it was just this big back and forth. Now, does it matter the way that we worship God and thinking about why we're doing things? Obviously. Is that then a reason to say, well, you're not a Christian because you do or you're not a Christian because you don't? No. You and I are going to be tempted in the context of the church to make some issue that we feel like is really important the most important thing and not love the people around us. You and I are going to be tempted to be selfish and only feel what we are feeling and not be aware of what other people are feeling and working through in life. You and I are going to be tempted to say, it's too much work today to love the people around me. I don't want to do it. And I don't want to have a tender heart because then I'm going to feel bad about the fact that I'm not doing all these things that I'm supposed to. But Peter says, if you have a foundation of humility that will then support God's goal of unity in the church, that's verse 8. But then Peter turns to another thing. Let's say you get all of that right with God's help and you're getting along with the people in the church, and you sort of have this united front against the difficulty and persecution that's surrounding you, and you can stand against it because, as one, you're in Christ, loving each other fervently from the heart, 
All right. We got this. We're going to get the bad guys. Right? No, Peter says, don't take vengeance on your enemies. Give them a blessing instead. We're like, whoa, Peter. They're doing something wrong. Yes. Our natural response to suffering wrong is to want the one who is harmed us to suffer the same or worse. And Peter forbids this vengeance. So he says in verse 9, don't take vengeance on your enemies. And how do we know that he is talking about enemies? Because the larger context is unjust authorities, unreasonable masters, unbelieving spouses, husbands specifically. And he says, don't return evil for evil or insult for insult, but give a blessing instead. How do we know this is connected with what he's already said? Because he says, to sum up. So he's referring to these things that he was just talking about. Now it's possible he's saying, don't take vengeance on the people right around you, like he's talking about largely focused in verse 8. But the whole context of 1 Peter is when you're facing persecution for doing what's right before God, how are you supposed to act? And so I think he's talking here about don't take vengeance on your enemies. Our tendency is to return evil for evil, insult for insult, but we cannot accomplish perfect justice in this way. There is a degree to which an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that whole thing that's described, for example, in Exodus 21 is an expression of the need for justice and all of that being accomplished. And yet, that very quickly, if we try to carry it out on a personal level, turns to trying to to get revenge on people instead of accomplish justice. We have imperfect power and limited knowledge, which means that when we try to do this on our own, we are going to fail to do what is right. Which is why Jesus says, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42, he says, You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Is Jesus saying, forget about all the things that, we, that I said before, that God said before? No. But he's saying the point of it was never for you to get revenge on people because they did you wrong. The point was, in the context of Old Testament, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, in, in the context of their nation, there needed to be appropriate punishment for the... Uh, crime that was committed so that it wasn't someone blinded you in the eye and you go and kill him. It wasn't, because that's what things tend to devolve into if there are not limits and boundaries and parameters put on things, is there is this disproportionate response. But Jesus is pointing out in Matthew 5, just because justice would say here is the appropriate punishment doesn't mean that you necessarily have to carry out that punishment. 
The parallel would be something like um, something like divorce, right? Are there grounds for divorce if there is immorality committed in marriage? If someone commits adultery, are there, is there a basis for divorce? Yes. Does the person who is sinned against then have to get divorced? No. Jesus is illustrating that same principle in Matthew 5. Peter is saying here, instead of revenge, we should give a blessing. Already referenced uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, but let me tell you verse 15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Or Romans 12, which is maybe the passage that we're more familiar with on the subject of taking vengeance. Uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. He says, verse 17, don't pay back evil for evil to anyone. Verse 18, as far as depends on you, be at peace with all men. Verse 19, don't take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. For his written vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, <coughs> you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Peter's point, Jesus' point, Paul's point is particularly true in instances of persecution. You and I would think that the appropriate response is to see them receive justice because they're doing wrong toward us. What was Jesus' response when he was unjustly crucified, persecuted by his enemies, called a blasphemer by they themselves who are blaspheming God, what was Jesus' response? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. What's Stephen's response? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What was Peter's own experience when he said, they're coming after us, we're going to go after them. And he takes the sword and he cuts off the servant's ear. Jesus heals him, says to Peter, put away the sword. So when Peter says, don't take vengeance in a moment of persecution, Peter is speaking out of experience, because that's exactly what he tried to do, and Jesus rebukes him. Don't take vengeance on your enemies. Now, is there a place for justice? Yes. Here's, I think, the difference that he's emphasizing. When I individually take it into my own hands to correct all the evils of the world, I am going to fail to achieve my goal and in all likelihood end up sinning myself. Every one of the um, popular stories of the last 20 or 30 years, whether it be books or movies or whatever else, where some great evil is done against a person and that man or woman goes on a quest for revenge, what happens? They become exactly like the evil that they are supposedly carrying out justice against. This person murdered your wife and kids in these stories, and so you go out and kill their families. How does that make you any better than them? It doesn't. Is that justice? No, because you're not 
It's not a proportionate response. It's not a biblical response. It's not a right response. It's a, I will get my satisfaction. You know what ends up happening? And they rarely show these in these, but sometimes they do. You get to the end of it and you say, what am I supposed to do now? I've killed my enemies. What do I do now? If that is the sum total of your life, to get revenge on the people that have done you wrong, even if you accomplish your goal, what reason is there for you to keep on living? Peter says, that's not the way you're supposed to live. You face persecution, you have the response that Jesus illustrated and described, which is, instead of seeking to take your own revenge, you entrust your soul to God and trust Him to work out the details. Recognize that that vindication may not come in your lifetime, because 2 Thessalonians 1 says, you who are troubled rest with us, it's all going to be set right when? When Jesus comes back. And so if it's going to be set right when Jesus comes back, there's going to be a lot of people between the point at which Peter is talking and the point at which Jesus comes back that Paul describes in which they are not going to see perfect justice accomplished. That doesn't mean we don't care about justice. That doesn't mean we don't pursue justice. But it does mean we're primarily seeking justice not for ourselves in terms of revenge, but for those who cannot advocate for it themselves. Individually and personally, the default response that Peter holds out for us is that you and I are supposed to give a blessing, not a curse, not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but give a blessing. Why? Because God is going to bless the righteous. You are called to inherit a blessing. Because God is going to bless you, you bless others, even though you would think that they deserve cursing, rejection, vengeance. He illustrates this from Psalm 34. Psalm 34, the historical inscription indicates that it was David before the Philistine king, 1 Samuel chapter 21, and that... He, uh, David um, has sort of this moment where he pretends to be crazy and, and has like spit running down his beard and just acting wild and, and insane so that he will preserve his life. What's the irony of Psalm 34? Psalm 34 is all about how God will deliver you. Some people have thought, well, maybe this is an expression of repentance on David's part or at the very least a reflection looking back on how God delivered him in spite of his actions instead of because of them. But this is the psalm that Peter is quoting here. And at the, about halfway through the psalm, the question is asked, Who is the man who desires life and loves days that he may see good? Right before that it says, Come children, listen to me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What's admonished? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, verse 19, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Does that sound a lot like what Peter said before? Entrust your soul to a faithful creator. Let God take vengeance. God is going to work it out in the end? Yes. And that's why I think Peter is quoting it here. So what does he say? He says, first of all, if you want to see good, speak truth. 
What are we tempted to do when someone has lied about us? Lie about them. It is extraordinarily hard for someone that you have opposition with on a political issue or a personal issue or whatever else to give a fair description of what they have said and done. We almost always exaggerate, and in so doing, we lie, we deceive, it turns to slander, and instead of forgiveness, we become sinful in the way that they have been sinful toward us. And so this passage says, if you want to see good, speak truth. If you want to see good, reject evil and seek peace. We're like, wait a minute. They have done wrong to me. How can I possibly seek peace with them or with anybody else when this wrong has not been dealt with? Well, Paul said it in Romans 12. Let God deal with the sin that has been perpetrated against you and seek peace with all people as much as it lies in you. And Peter's saying the same kind of thing here. He's saying, turn away from evil and do good. Even though it looks like doing good is not going to accomplish vindication or retribution or any of those things for you, do what is right Seek peace and pursue it. If you want to see good, remember that God sees and hears the righteous, but opposes the evil. And this is particularly important in moments when it seems like evil is winning and righteousness is getting trampled in the dirt. Because in those moments, you and I are going to be tempted to say, God doesn't see, God doesn't care, so I should do what I want and take it into my own hands and fix my problem, and then it will all be better. And Peter says, no. If you do that, you will become the one that God is opposing and God will cast down. Two weeks ago, we saw that Jesus modeled how obedience to God will lead you to suffering from unjust rulers and authorities, how he trusted his soul to God in the midst of that suffering. Last week, we saw that even wives with unbelieving husbands can trust God to work through their godly examples. And now, in summary, Peter is saying all God's people can live humbly in unity while blessing their enemies. Living life humbly without deceit or strife leads to God's blessing. Living life proudly in deceit with schemes for revenge leads to God's opposition. We become God's enemies. We're going to see this more next week, but God calls us to humility to honesty, and to peace. We see this at the end of chapter 3. Life in this way brings a blessing both now and in the future, especially as we together and individually share that blessing with those who, from a human perspective, least deserve it. Live humbly as one while you bless your enemies. Let's pray. Father, what Peter models and lays out for us here is a really hard thing to do. We can't do it ourselves. We can barely do it even with your help because we are so often focused on our rights and what we deserve and the people that have done wrong to us and how we're going to fix it. Someone lied about me. Can I really speak truth about them? Someone did harm to me. Can I really be kind to them? Is pride really that big of a deal? Is it really a reason for God to oppose what I'm doing? Lord, help us to treat the people around us in our families, in our church body, in the relationships right around us the way that this passage describes, rooted in humility, 
resulting in blessing those who do wrong to us, desiring even as Jesus and Stephen did that some of them might yet become those with whom we dwell in unity. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.